son. Okay. So uh, I could kind of feel like a little bit of a collective groan as he said that Drew's going to be here today sharing with you after the length of last week's sermon. I promise you, this is not going to be quite that long. But uh, I want to start this morning as we're, uh, we're together, give you a question to think about here for just a moment. If you were one of the peanuts, which one would you be? What's that? Pig pen? <laughs> Just think about it for a moment. Maybe talk to your neighbor. If you were one of the, the peanuts, would you be the daydreaming Snoopy, the faithful friend Woodstock, the average Joe Charlie Brown? Would you be uh, the, the book smart Marcy? Just think about it for a moment. Talk to a friend about it, and, uh, and we'll reconvene in a moment here. Woodstock. All right. All right, a few of you guys. Which of the peanuts would you be if you were a peanut? You'd be Charlie Brown? All right. What's that? Linus. Linus, the philosopher of the bunch. Any others? Peppermint Patty. All right. You can start calling me Chuck. Or really, you can start calling Aaron Chuck since he's the, the Charlie Brown of the bunch. Well, today, if I was a peanut, I feel like I would be Lucy. <laughs> and, and the reason I feel like I would be Lucy is because last week I told you guys that Isaiah is poetry, and that's true, until it isn't. <laughs> because as we're going to be reading through the book of Isaiah, we're going to find spots where we have these little narrative interruptions. And today is one of those. And so I feel like I kind of set you up, holding the football, and then just as we're coming to kick it this week, I'm like, psych! And so uh, today we're going to be looking at Isaiah 6, which is actually an interruption to the poetry and the music of Isaiah, and it comes in, and it's very different. But these narrative interruptions are actually really important, because they're going to play a few roles. They're going to really slow us down, for one thing. Have any of you guys ever watched any uh, musicals? Okay, musicals are kind of the same thing, but in verse. So in a musical, you're going to have these interruptions to the story of song, and they're going to actually do a lot to further the plot or the characterization in just a few moments. In just a few minutes, you do a lot more than you can actually do in just a normal storytelling. For instance, any of you guys seen uh, The Fiddler on the Roof? Okay, from right from the get-go, you have this little song interruption, and it introduces you to the fabric of their society, which is what? Tradition. And then you go back to the storytelling, and every time you get to a moment where the fabric of their society, that tradition, is either celebrated or challenged, 
you have another musical interruption, and those are really important to understanding the plot. Well, as we go through the book of Isaiah, we're going to find those, but with narrative interruptions. And these narrative interruptions, they're going to slow us down, because just as we kind of get into a groove of reading this poetry, now it stops and it changes. And it stands out, because it's different. So it's going to slow us down. It's also going to illustrate some of the themes of the poems we've been looking at. It's going to illustrate them for us, and it's going to show us what these actually look like. And in so doing, it's also going to remind us of the reality of what's being talked about in these poems. That these poems, they're not just kind of head in the clouds, uh, you know, kind of a, a thoughts and philosophies and, and things like that. No, this is real reality. This is real truth. And we're going to be reminded of that in a powerful way, looking at these stories that illustrate the themes that we're talking about. So in order for us to really grasp that, in order for us to really see the, the truth of the themes being talked about, we've got to look a little bit at what those themes are that are being drawn out in 2 through 5, if we're going to understand what's happening in chapter 6. So let's look at some of these themes. In Isaiah 2 through 5, one of the major themes that we have here is that Yahweh is exalted. He is high, he is glorious, he was great, and humanity is going to be humbled. They're going to be brought low and put in their place. And I'll show you how this is developed. Let's look at this in chapter 2. The eyes of the arrogant will be humbled, and human pride brought low. Yahweh alone will be exalted in that day. Yahweh Almighty has a day in store for all the proud and lofty, for all that is exalted, and they will be humbled. The arrogance of man will be brought low and human pride humbled. Yahweh alone will be exalted in that day, and the idols will totally disappear. He will be great, and he will be seen for the great God that he is. Also in Isaiah 2, we see this phrase, the fearful presence of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty, three times in that chapter, in verse 10, 19, and 21. Yahweh is going to be seen as glorious and so glorious that it's terrifying. We see it again in chapter 3. Instead of fragrance, there will be a stench. He's talking about the people who have made themselves prideful before him, he's going to talk about what's going to happen to them. Instead of their fragrance, there will be a stench. Instead of a beautiful sash, a rope. Instead of well-dressed hair, baldness. Instead of fine clothing, sackcloth. Instead of beauty, branding. Your men will fall by the sword. Your warriors in battle. The gates of Zion will lament and mourn destitute. She will sit on the ground. You who have been so prideful, you who have put yourself up before me, no, you're going to be brought low. All of your beauty and splendor is going to go away. So we saw it in 2 and 3. We see it in 4. It says, In that day the branch of Yahweh will be beautiful and glorious. The fruit of the land will be the pride and glory of the survivors in Israel. Then Yahweh will create over all Mount Zion and over those who assemble there a cloud of smoke by day and a fire by night. 
Over everything, the glory will be a canopy. So people will be brought low and everyone humbled. The eyes of the arrogant uh, eyes of the arrogant humbled, but Yahweh Almighty will be exalted by his justice, and the holy God proved holy by his righteous acts. So we saw in 2 through 5 that humanity is going to be exalted, or <laughs> Yahweh is going to be exalted, and humanity is going to be humbled. That human pride is going to be put in its place. And when I think about this, it kind of reminds me of this moment at, uh, at college uh, where I went at Multnomah. They, they had this, this guy who really made a big deal of himself and really made it seem like he was kind of this image of masculinity and uh, could take anyone on. Until it was that we had this event called SmackDown, which was where all of the guys would go and they would bring their... Uh, their mattresses, which we found these vinyl-coated mattresses make really good wrestling mats when you bring a bunch of them down to the common room and put them together. And so all of these mattresses get put down in the common room, and we all gather around, and in the name of good-spirited fun, people get called out and wrestle it on. Well, then there came this moment when this guy who was uh, this big, prideful man uh, was called into the ring to face my friend Matt Renzi. And I hear some snickering there because some people remember Matt Renzi from when he was here. Matt was a sergeant in the Marine Corps who taught hand-to-hand combat and did three tours of duty. And so this guy gets called out into the ring and in like seconds, this guy gets his tookus handed to him and is brought low, literally, (laughs) and humbled. And in that moment, he can no longer claim to be what he's not because he has been put in his place by someone infinitely more skilled and infinitely more powerful than him. And right now, when we look at Isaiah 2 through 5, God is saying, like, you have made yourselves so big in your talk. You think so much of yourselves. You're going to be brought low. And I'm going to show you who's God and who's not. So Isaiah 2 through 5, Yahweh is exalted and humanity will be humbled. And we also see that Yahweh will destroy the wicked, but have mercy on the righteous. We see this starting in chapter 2. It says, people will flee to the caves in the rocks and the holes in the ground from the fearful presence of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty when he rises to shake the earth. In that day, people will throw away to the moles and bats their idols of silver and idols of gold, which they made to worship. They will flee to caverns in the rocks and the overhanging crags from the fearful presence of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty when he rises to shake the earth. They are going to find just how powerful, glorious, and mighty God is, and it's going to scare the pants off of them because he is good and holy and righteous. That's a terrifying thing for evildoers. See it in chapter 3. Tell the righteous it will be well with them, for they will enjoy the fruit of their deeds. 
Woe to the wicked. Disaster is upon them. They will be paid back for what their hands have done. I feel like this woe to the wicked, we don't really talk like that. No one says woe, unless they're maybe talking to a horse. It's not woe like that. It's maybe a good way to think about it would be, I'm coming for you. And from a big and mighty and glorious God who is holy, that's a terrifying thing to be told. If my friend Matt was to say, I'm coming for you, I would just about pee myself and run away. God is infinitely greater than that. It says disaster is upon them. Chapter 3 also says that Yahweh takes his place in court. He rises to judge the people. Yahweh enters into judgment, the elders and leaders of his people. It is you who have ruined my vineyard. The plunder of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people and grinding the faces of the poor? Declares against, <laughs> declares against the Lord, Yahweh Almighty. God is mad because his people, the leaders of his people, have abused one another have twisted and distorted justice, and so he will bring justice. He rises as the judge. And then we see that in chapter 4, really all of chapter 4 focuses on his mercy for the righteous, that it will be well with them, that he will bring redemption. He talks about how his glory will dwell with them. Really, chapter 5 focuses almost entirely on destruction for the wicked. I think it's like seven times he says, woe to you, or I'm coming for you. You're going to be destroyed. Over and over and over. So we see these themes throughout, that Yahweh is exalted and humanity humbled that Yahweh will destroy the wicked and have mercy on the righteous. And we're going to see both of these themes play out in Isaiah chapter 6. Both of them are going to rise up, and we're going to see them play an integral part of what we're looking at here. And it's almost actually like they come to a crescendo here. So I'll show you what I mean. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 5, it starts off with really... uh, holding up this theme of Yahweh being exalted and humanity humbled because it starts off by telling us in the year King Uzziah died. And that might not seem like a, a big deal to us necessarily off the, off the bat. We're just like, oh, he's just dating it. I think there's a little more to it. Because if we look at uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 26, it says, after Uzziah became powerful, his pride led to his downfall. He was unfaithful to Yahweh his God and entered the temple of Yahweh to burn incense on the altar of incense. Uzziah, who had a censer in his hand, ready to burn incense, became angry while he was raging at the priests in their presence before the incense altar in the Lord's temple. Leprosy broke out on his forehead. When Azariah, the chief priest, and all the other priests looked at him, 
they saw that he had leprosy on his forehead. So they hurried him out. Indeed, he himself was eager to leave because Yahweh had afflicted him. King Uzziah had leprosy until the day he died. He lived in a separate house, leprous and banned from the temple of Yahweh. Jotham, his son, had charge of the palace and governed the people in the land. So when we read, in the year King Uzziah died, we should really be thinking, in the year the proud king died. The proud king that was humbled by Yahweh. The proud king who lost everything. Not only could he no longer be in the temple, not only could he not be in God's presence, now he also didn't even get to rule his kingdom anymore. He was exiled and banished. In the year that we were reminded of God's punishment of human pride, he says, in that year, my eyes have seen the king. Let's look at this. It says, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne and train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the sound of their voices the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I'm ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, Yahweh Almighty. Guys, look at this. When we see it, it says, the Lord. And there, you'll notice that it's not all caps. When we see Lord in all capitals, that tells us that what we're seeing is the personal name Yahweh being used. But when we see it where just the first letter is capitalized, it means that we're seeing the word for master. So in the year the proud and humbled king died, I saw the master high and lifted up. He was exalted on a throne. In the year the king died, I saw God on a throne. I was reminded of his kingship. The train of his robe filled the temple. The whole earth is full of his glory. And he is the king. In the year I was reminded of the, the impotence of human pride, I was reminded of the glory and rulership of God. And my response to seeing this glorious and amazing and holy God was, woe to me, I'm ruined. Again, we don't really talk like this. No one says, woe to me, or I'm ruined. Maybe a better translation would be, I'm so hosed. <laughs> I'm gonna die. I am straight up gonna die. He is terrified. In this moment, when human pride 
we've had this reminder of human pride being humbled. We are also reminded of the glory and amazing rulership of Yahweh. And it's great and it's terrifying. That phrase where it says, Yahweh Almighty, some of your Bibles translate it a little differently, probably a little better, of Yahweh of hosts or of armies. In the year I was reminded of human pride being humbled, I saw Yahweh of armies, and I saw all of these seraphim around him. I think that what we're seeing is Yahweh and his armies around him. And as he beholds it, he's just absolutely awestruck and terrified of what he sees, and very rightfully so. Because he is great. And in his presence, he is humbled. Isaiah is. It goes on, verses 6 through 8. Here we see, Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth, and he said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. He said, Go and tell this people, Be ever hearing, but never perceiving. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make this heart of this people calloused. Make their eyes or their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, For how long, O Lord? And he answered, Until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will be again laid waste. But as the terebinth and the oak leave stumps when they're cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. So what we have is Isaiah, he's confronted by the exaltation, the amazing glory and holiness of God. As he sees it, he's terrified because he recognizes his own sin, that he doesn't belong. He thinks that he's going to die. But rather than God saying, you don't belong, God cleanses his sin. He says, I'll make you belong. He cleanses, he atones for that sin. And yet he also talks about his coming judgment that he's going to bring this judgment upon his people. And while it's hard to think about God's judgment, one of the things that I love here is seeing how patient God's judgment is. Look at this. He says, be ever hearing, but never understanding. Ever seeing, but never perceiving. From the get-go, as he's sending Isaiah out, he's saying, go, warn them. Say these things to these people. 
the more you do it, the more their hearts are going to become hard. From the get-go, Isaiah knows, I'm going to go and say these things to people, and absolutely no one is going to pay attention. No one's going to get it. Man, I thought I had a hard job sometimes. But look at how patient God's judgment is. He says this, as I was reading through uh, Isaiah, I was listening through it on audiobook, actually, and I noticed, I was like, man, it seems like he's telling them to look a lot. Because over and over, I kept getting spots where it says, look, I'm going to do this. And so I did some word searches, and I found that uh, I did them in Hebrew just because it's a little easier. Hebrew has less words. We have things like look, watch, see. Like, we just have so many synonyms. Hebrew has less. But you can see this in your English Bible. You'll see look 25 times. Behold 70 times. See another 77 times or here 96 times. So from the beginning, he sends Isaiah out saying, no one's going to see, no one's going to hear, no one's going to understand or perceive what I'm talking about. And yet, 268 times in Isaiah, Yahweh commands them to see, to hear, to watch, to behold, to listen yet they just won't. And so as we look at it, we see that God does bring his judgment, but look at how patient he is here. Look at how much he calls them to come, to pay attention to what he's saying, to his warnings. Yet they just won't. So his judgment does come. And so as we look in Isaiah 6, we see these themes from 2 through 5 really brought to a head. And we actually get a glimpse not only of these verses talking about the exaltation of God that is coming, but we actually see this vision reminding us that it is a real reality. This is how life truly is, even if we don't see it. And we are reminded that Yahweh will destroy the wicked says that they are going to be like a tree that's cut off. And yet, he gives us a promise of hope. Isaiah 6 really shows us that we should worship Yahweh for his holiness, his glory, and his judgment. That not only are these things true of Yahweh, but we should worship him for them because these are good things. We should worship Yahweh for his holiness, because we have a God who is good, who is right, who makes things the way they're supposed to be, who restores things to the way they're supposed to be. And that's good news, guys. We have a God who is glorious, who is amazingly huge and completely powerful and awesome. And it's something we should praise him for. We have a God who judges rightly. Who restores the world. Not only did he create it to be good and right and whole, but he's going to restore it to be that way. And we should praise him for that. 
So what does it look like to praise God, to worship God with these things? One, we should worship God with fear and trembling because he is powerful and awesome and holy. And if the power of God does not terrify us, maybe we don't actually fully understand, well, none of us fully understand, but maybe we don't have a good enough picture in our minds of just how powerful and glorious he is. Let's take a moment here to read this again. Just close your eyes with me and just just think about this. Try to imagine it. I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. They were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook. And the temple was filled with smoke. Guys, we have a powerful, powerful God a God that is so great, he is worshipped by these, these mysterious spirits of fire that are before him, that themselves sound super cool, and yet they worship Yahweh because he is way more infinitely amazing. We should worship him with fear and trembling, and we should worship him with confession of sin. I think it's amazing that what we see in Isaiah, as he sees the, the power and the glory of God, and as it terrifies him, his response is to confess sin. And one of the reasons that I find that amazing is because it almost seems to us like he's, he's watching as these seraphim are praising God and speaking his praises, and his response is not to say just simply, I'm a sinful person, but I am a man of unclean lips. It's like he's saying, I'm not worthy to sing your praises because of my sin. It's like he's saying he's not even worthy to join in their song. And I think that one of the, this is amazing because I think it's a good reminder to us that as we're here, we're going to spend some time singing God's praises. But if we have sin in our lives, maybe the better place to start in worship here is for us to take some time to confess that sin, to bring it to God, to ask for his forgiveness. So if we're, if we're here and if God has put something on your heart that he has uh, convicted you of, then take a break. Pray to him. Confess that sin. If you've sinned against someone else, grab them, pull them aside, give them a call on the phone, go ahead and walk out and go and handle that. Confess that sin. Receive God's forgiveness. That is a good and right and valid and really an encouraged form of worship. 
We should worship him with fear and trembling, with confession of sin. We should worship him with our praises. Guys, we get to join in the song of the seraphim singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. And the whole earth is full of his glory. And that is worth singing and celebrating. We get to both confess our sin and then we get to follow up by joining in the song because he is good. He forgives. He brings salvation. He has mercy on the righteous, on those who repent. And we should teach his word. It's amazing. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. And God atones for his sin and then sends him out to use those lips to teach his word. We should join in and sing praises, and we should tell other people of the gospel. Because, guys, we know, every single one of us, we know people who need this message. We know people who need the message of the salvation and the mercy that God offers those who turn from their sin. And of the coming judgment for those who don't. We ourselves need that taught to one another constantly. I need you guys to speak it to me, and you need me to speak it to you. And those outside the church need us to speak it to them. So let's be those people who teach God's word and worship him in that. Let's worship him by putting our hopes in him alone. As we look at the passage, we see that it ends with this promise. God says that the wicked, they'll be like a tree that gets cut down. He says, but just as a stump gets left behind when a tree is cut down, I'm going to leave something behind. I'm going to leave behind the holy seed. And he doesn't really elaborate on that yet. But we're going to see next week that what we're talking about is the Messiah, the anointed one of Yahweh, Jesus Christ, that our hopes are in him alone. Guys, our hopes are not in one politician or another. They are not going to solve our problems. Whatever happens in the election, whoever wins, they are not going to solve our problems. Only Jesus Christ is going to solve the world's problems. Only he has the power to set the world right. Our hope is in him. Our hope is not in legislation. Whatever sort of legislation is passed, it will not solve our problems. Only Jesus can do that. This passage reminds us of the hope that we have in God. That putting our hope in a politician or in legislation, that's putting our hope in human pride. Where we think that we can solve them. We think that we are so big and so powerful. But guys, Yahweh is the one who's exalted. He's the only one who has that kind of power. So we should be humble. and We should recognize him for who he is and worship him accordingly. God, we pray that as we go out this week, that we would remember who you are, that we would see you and we would see your glory, 
that we would be convicted of our sin and confess it. That we would follow you with faithfulness, with joy, with worship on our lips, and with teaching of your word to those around us in the world. That we would put our hope and our trust in you and honor you and serve you. Pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.